This is Shifran Stop, a fun podcast about games and cultural stuff and comedy and interviews. It's episode 60 and we're back. Hello, the internet. Hello. We have a festive bag of delights for you today. We've got John Ronson and his son, Joel. Oh my God, that's going to be so fun. I've been like a John Ronson fan since the 90s, since the Ronson mission. So maybe we'll ask him some questions about that. We've got Stephanie Posebeck. She's amazing. Um, artist, designer, data visualisation person, genius. Oh, we've got the lady from Boring who did the amazing vending machine sound recordings. And as ever, we have snack time this year with Lee Maguire joining us again and bringing lots and lots of festive treats. Possibly too many, is it, if that's possible. Let's, <laughs> let's find out. His sack is bulging His indeed. Sack is, I'm looking at it now. <laughs> it's definitely bulging. Cool. Let's go. Okay. Let's go. Let's go. Here it comes. Here it comes. And we're off. And we're off. Hiya, Jack. It's Ray. Can you bring your Kodak camera to protect some mugshots of me from my gun license? I've got to have four little photographs. I mentioned it to you some time ago. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be really annoyed. I love how, like, grumpy he sounds that he can't get through. He's like... Keep telling you about my photos, my gun license. I really need this gun. Have you had many of these calls, or is that a one-off? Yeah, I am posing as somebody who takes pictures for people so they can buy guns. To prevent people getting guns, yes. you offer a photo-taking service. Oh, I see. Right. So, so they so never get their gun. God, that'd be really devious, wouldn't it? Really annoying. But um, what are the photos for his face? I was thinking the photos would be like him with a gun. Like, <laughs> to like, prove. Like one of those like, chicks in bikinis in a desert with like a gun. Um, prove that he looks really good with a gun <laughs> for the gun licence. You're not allowed one unless you can carry it. You've got to test it out, yeah. <laughs> can you pull this off as a look? <laughs> it's nice to see you again. Yeah, it's nice to see you. It's been... Um, listeners probably don't know this, but outside of recording Chevron Stop, we don't actually make a point of seeing each other very much socially. I tell you why listeners, I know that listeners don't know this, it's because quite often listeners email me and say, happy (laughs) Christmas to you and Rue, or like, best regards to Rue, and I I think they sort of think we live together in a big shift run stop house. That would be so nice. I know, can you imagine? Um, But no, we very very seldom see, although we did used to, unbelievably, we used to do this every week, which seems incredible. Yeah, I don't know how we did that. I don't. I mean... I know we've both been much busier in the last year, hence we haven't been doing so much of this. Um, But no, looking back on it, how was it ever possible to do it? Not only every fortnight, as we did to begin with, but every week for a year. What was missing in our lives that we felt we needed to do that? I should say, Rue's wearing an amazing um, Game Over, like, sort of Space Invaders t-shirt. It's my best t-shirt. Really cool. I think it was a gift from my brother. And I've got a feeling it might be a threadless t-shirt, but I'm not sure. Oh, it looks like it could be, yeah. It's good. That sort of thing. It's good. I wore it to a um, a careers talk that I did at a school today. No. Yes. Was it your old school? No. Did they invite you back? No, I have done that before. <laughs> have you really? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That was nice, being, being invited back to give um, awards. I think it was like the GCSE presentation ceremony, and they invited me to come and talk about my job and oh my you know, what I was doing. Are you yeah, like their exciting. most famous like alumni? No. Oh. No, because... Duncan from Blue went to that oh, school. Oh, of course, yeah. yeah. We had, I know about that oh, story. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, everyone knows that story. Everyone who's <laughs> ever met me has heard of that one. Um, but no, today was a guy called David Smith, who teaches at St Paul's School. Okay. He invited me to come and give a talk to his 
students and I talked about jobs and I talked about if someone tells you that there's a plan or that mm. you should have a, like a really really detailed career mm. plan in mind then ignore them because they're talking nonsense oh, that was my anti-career talk Lama of the digital world it was really fun it was lovely to be asked and it was really nice to be able to talk about the things that I wish somebody had told me when mm. I was that age that was quite mm. a nice feeling did you feel like a sort of weird sense of the future escaping before you like in a kind of you know if someone had talked to you when you were a child that n- neither our jobs would exist for example exactly that's like what, what will kids today be doing what will they be doing in 25 years time what will us? they be doing yeah and yeah. and how much of a threat is that to me yeah. <laughs> personally what will you be doing? Yeah, yeah what will they be doing that i now won't be how obsolete will we be oh, oh wow very but right. the yeah the point exactly that mm. most of the jobs i've done since i've left university didn't exist mm. when i was at school and most of them didn't even exist before you know the year before i started doing them mm. so yeah it was good it was nice did they ask questions and stuff loads did they really? you know you get to the end of giving a little talk and then you say has anyone got any questions and you expect one if yeah. you're lucky every hand went up wow. and they all wanted to ask a question and then most of them wanted to follow up and like oh it was it was really good fun and i got to have lunch with them as well oh, it was best best day i've had this month actually it was amazing oh. hello this is simon out of trev and simon sorry trev can't be here today but he's dead <laughs> this is shifter on stop we're here today with john ronson hello john hello we're going to get to know John Ronson, yeah. author, writer, musician. Musician, that's one that musician not many people would think of him as a... <laughs> Musician, if, if, own, if knowing C, F and G counts. <laughs> <laughs> Keyboard player extraordinaire. Multi-talented. And Joel Ronson, actually, who's going to be in it a bit later. I am, because we're doing the intro now, and <laughs> really, if this was in order, I'd be in at Nando's. But um, hello, can't wait for it to happen in the future. Uh, I was away and when I came back my wife had put up the Many State Goats movie poster in my office <laughs> <laughs> and so it's like the kind of focal point and I keep on planning to do something about that and I've got these other like pictures over there which would balance it out and make it seem less less significant <laughs> um, but You've come, you've come at that moment. So you enter your your office. Yeah. The first thing that you see is it, the men who stare at goats movie poster. Yeah, it's a, it's it's not. You know, it wasn't me. <laughs> you didn't choose to have that. Though. I didn't choose it. So you uh, you wrote the book of the men who stare at goats, yeah. and then it was. Um, well, I, I sort of have. <laughs> Were you involved much in the filmmaking process? Not at all. And in fact, I sold I sold the rights in like two thousand and four, and then I I didn't hear anything till about. 2006. Oh, wow. Even though I knew that there was a guy called Paul Lister, a producer in right. Hollywood. And then finally, after a year and a half, he phoned up to introduce himself. But he seemed nice. And then, uh, but, but then things hotted up a bit because he got a guy called Peter Strawn to write the screenplay. Peter didn't want to meet me because he wanted to sort of feel free to just write it without being kind of encumbered by me. What I would have done would have been to sort of glare at him, you know, across the room <laughs> while he wrote it. So obviously he didn't want that stress in his life. So so he, he stayed away from me until he'd written the screenplay. But then once he'd written the screenplay, uh, we became like firm friends to the extent that we've now written a screenplay together, uh, which is going to hopefully get filmed next year. So then nothing happened. But Well, then I wouldn't have known anything, I don't think, if it wasn't for the fact that Peter would phone me up with, like, updates. So Peter would phone up and say, I've got, like, good news and bad news. Good news that George Clooney wanted, wants to make it, um, but has actually decided that he's not going to make it. And then that was, like, over the course of one weekend. And then um, and then George Clooney came back right at the end and made it. Not just because John's sitting next to me. If I'm completely honest, I think the book is better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I very no, I like I like the film a lot. Right. Um, I was sort of surprised that not everyone liked it as much as as I did, but I liked it a lot. But I never saw the two things as being in competition with each other. I I I kind of I think rightly saw that the film, you know, kind of becomes a complete. You know, Peter didn't want to be with me when he was writing the screenplay. He wanted to kind of turn you know, the screenplay, and then they wanted to turn the film into something that had its own, you know, sort of fence around it. And the structure is quite different, isn't it? It's mm. not a direct screenplay based on the story of the novel. It's actually something where they've, they've kind of taken quite a lot of liberty with your, with your book. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's chunks of the film which are kind of directly from the book, like conversations that George Clooney and Ian McGregor have and so on, but then huge, huge amounts kind of change. So by the time I saw the film, I, I really didn't think at all like I was seeing anything to do with anything that was anything to do with me mm. I, you know i felt completely like a member of the public seeing it uh, and and i liked it i thought it was very good when i was making stanley kubrick's boxes uh, i remember stanley kubrick's lawyer said to me i was saying that they might be turning my book the men stay at goats into a movie and he was this kind of grizzled old jewish guy in st john's wood and he said ah, let me tell you something <laughs> <laughs> he said no film ever gets made <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> so that so that turned out to be true with, with them, but turned out to be false with Men's Day at Guts. And for anyone who hasn't read it, them is subtitled Adventures with Extremists. It was basically, um, I'd been making some documentaries and writing about extremists. So Omar Bakri, Mohammed, uh, who, was, who was like a you know, sort of early British militant Islamist leader. And then I did Ian Paisley as well and went to Cameroon. Then what happened, I was in Brixton, I was making this, I was making this series for the love of, and the producer Fenton said to me, did I, did I want to make a series about, why, what? <laughs> Fenton? <laughs> Fenton? Fenton? <laughs> Fenton's taken on a whole new significance. <laughs> Um, we're just about quietly giggling to ourselves. Still in touch with him. Do you think Fenton now? Do you think all the Fentons in the world like feel like in the same way that all the Adolfs in the world feel? <laughs> all the true. Saddams. That like just it's a bit embarrassed. And their friends are all now calling them Benton. Right. So Fenton said, "Do you want to make a um, series about conspiracy theories?" And he was thinking like, "Who killed JFK?" And and I just you know I really. Couldn't care less about that, but but then I kind of remembered both Omar Bakri and also Ian Paisley, and also the Ku Klux Klan. I'd done a film about a politically correct faction of the Ku Klux Klan who wanted to ban, you know, basically racism and hoods and cross burnings from the Klan. A really inclusive chapter of the Klan. Yeah, it was kind of what he hadn't really thought about was you know what do you replace? You know, that's kind of the the essence of the Klan. <laughs> he wanted to kind of eradicate from the Klan like all the things that were like fun if we can't do that what's the point um so so i've done those three stories and, and i realized when fenton said that to me that um they all had something in common which was that they all believed in a particular conspiracy theory which was um that there was a secret room somewhere and mm. and that suddenly struck me as, as really amazing that these three people who, who would have had nothing else in common ian paisley mm. omar bakri and the clan mm. all had this one thing in common and for each of them the secret room was was different you know, for Ian Paisley, it was populated by Catholics. Uh, for for the clan, it was the Bilderberg Group, you mm. know, the kind of Jewish Bilderberg Group. Mm. Even though there's actually nothing Jewish about the Bilderberg Group, except it's got a Jewish-sounding name. Mm. For Omer, it was actually the Bilderberg Group as well. So I thought, wouldn't it be funny to do a series where I kind of hook up with conspiracy theorists and together we track down the secret room, like go on a sort of 
famous five type adventure to find the secret room and so that was the basis of them that, that's how them started and it's our journey to find the secret room um so mike white uh you know wrote a screenplay and edgar wright said he was going to direct it and then it just didn't happen. didn't happen. Are you worried that there's like an actual conspiracy to stop it being made? That yeah. Day? The Bilderberg <laughs> group of stopping Have it. Have you happening. read them? No, I haven't read it. I really want to. Mm. And it's good. They're, they're bringing out, <laughs> well, it is. It's brilliant. It took me five fucking years. They're bringing it out again in January with a new cover. Oh, so uh, I'll, I'll get you on then. Thank you, John. Yeah. But there's two other films maybe getting made. There's the one that I wrote with Peter, which is sort of loosely inspired by um, my years in Frank Sidebottom band. Yes. Um, but it's not actually about Frank Sidebottom, but it's sort of inspired by, by those times. So you were the, the keyboard player? Yeah. For a while? Yeah, for a couple of years. And you replaced Mark Radcliffe? Yeah. As the keyboard player? Yeah. For a while, I mean, after a while he came back and, he, and I, I played keyboards and he played accordion. Right. I was glad when Mark Radcliffe said he was going to return... I feared that I would then be fired, but Frank Sidebottom was nice enough to um, keep me in the band and then give Mark Radcliffe an accordion playing role. Kept you on. We've yeah. previously interviewed Audrey Marsden. Oh, who, who also was Frank's yeah. keyboard player after me, of course. Yeah. Yeah. So you're the second keyboard player that we've had from the Frank Sidebottom band. Wow. I watched an interview with you. Um, with Robert Llewellyn um, doing the carpet. Oh yeah, and, yeah. Um, and I was in the middle of writing the psychopath you were, test. You were yeah. quite, yeah. You were quite like sort of worried about it. it yeah, it was like. a fucking nightmare. Yeah. I remember. I think the thing that was really vexing me at the time was I had all these people saying, really trying to kind of canvas me into their way of seeing things. Uh, and the big thing was about Asperger's. ADHD and childhood bipolar disorder because people were saying to me they don't exist mm. none of those things exist and you have to write that but then you know I'd meet people with Asperger's and, <laughs> and I thought I can't tell them that the thing that they think they have doesn't exist you know I'm completely not only am I unqualified to say it but also I'm pretty sure it does exist um, and it ate me up for about a year because that's what the psychopath test is all about it's about you know, you can tell somebody's a psychopath from their from the checklist, like a, a diagnosis tool. Yeah, and that's kind of swept through psychiatry, mm. replacing Freudianism, uh, which is probably in some ways good, because uh, Freudianism is sort of quite often akin to um, sort of amateur sleuthing, mm. right? <laughs> and uh, so, I, so in some ways, it's a good thing that you know something a bit more scientific, like checklists, has taken over. Uh, and so obviously I was kind of looking at all of that because of the psychopath test, but then everyone was saying, you know, Asperger's, ADHD and childhood bipolar disorder are three examples of, like, fake diseases that don't actually exist mm. that have been sort of propagated, if that's the right word, mm. um, by psychiatry and the pharmaceutical industry. And I have to expose that. Wow. So uh, you were being lobbied, basically. Yeah, to... totally. Yeah. By, by friends, you know, and by Scientologists... And by um, and then on the other side, I had sort of people saying, you know, anybody who believes that is, you know, is a is a, is a conspiracy theorist. They're like a Scientologist, and and I was like totally trying to work out, you know, what what to think about all of that. And in the end, I, I, the conclusion I came to was was um, it's true about childhood bipolar disorder that that's a sort of massaged mm. disease that if it does exist exists a hell of a lot less than it's diagnosed. But Asperger's and ADHD are, are, are like much too complicated to make that sort of blanket 
you know. Do you feel like you had to decide whether it was true or not? Like that that seems to be quite interesting that like you mm-hmm. can just kind of go, Well, I don't know. You sort of have to come down on one side and you know. Yeah. Well certainly with this story that's what yeah. people were doing and yeah. exactly I don't know was considered to be like a kind of weakness. Mm. But you've got to be pretty sure, you've got to have pretty much thought thought it through totally before you can say I don't know. Mm. And and I, and that's what I was spending at those months doing is that your kind of method for finding the truth in things in life is sort of to go well what is the what's the absolute most ridiculous on that end and then what's the most ridiculous on that end and then maybe maybe i can triangulate the truth somehow from those yeah maybe i think so maybe yeah because quite often i mean right back from them Mm -hmm. the conspiracy theorists you know had a sort of view on the world which might have had some truth And and i thought that spending time with extremists and conspiracy theorists might make me see the mainstream world in a, in a kind of new way. Because mm. they were the first people to sort of talk about globalisation as being, you know, as being evil. You know, they, they, they were sort of teaching me things about the world that I didn't know. And, and, and the same was true with the Menestaic Goats. I mean, it was like the kind of extremists and the Menestaic Goats who were telling me about some of the more um, dangerous CIA experiments like... MK Ultra, which was real. And in the psychopath test, it was the Scientologists who sort of, you know, kind of first turned me on to the whole idea of there being difficulties with psychiatry. So on, so on every, on every um, in, in each of the books, it was the kind of extremists who actually, in a way, gave me the story. And, and the conclusion I came to on every occasion was that the extremists had sort of got things way out of proportion. Mm. But it was still a kind of interesting... It's it's a good way of seeing the world upside down is to see it from the perspective of, you know, somebody on the fringes of society. Mm. It's um, hard not to draw comparisons with uh, someone like Louis Theroux. I'm constantly kind of surprised at how me and Louis tend to get interested in the same stuff (laughs) all the time. You know, when I was writing The Psychopath Test, he made two films which kind of directly looked at the same stuff that I was looking at. <laughs> it's, it's, it's weird, we're like kind of conjoined twins. I, I used to think that like conjoined twins, for one of us to grow stronger, the other should die. <laughs> um, Did you have a preference? Because <laughs> I noticed you have, you have blurbs from him on the back of your books as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't think that at all anymore. <laughs> you, must have, you must have a mutual fan base as well. Sort of yeah, no, now I'm, I'm really kind of fond of Louis and there's no animosity <laughs> between us whatsoever. But just just that to make the record absolutely clear, yeah, you, yeah, don't, yeah. you don't wish him dead. No, I don't wish him dead. <laughs> and now I think it is kind of remarkable. And in fact, whenever I see Louis, I we sort of I, I say this to him you know I think it's kind of remarkable that you know we cannot talk for a year but we'll end up researching kind of pretty much identical things and oh and I'll tell you one time like, going back like about so at least 10 years or more about 12 years I went to this place called Almost Heaven um, which is like one of the most remotest white separatist communities in America I remember it's so remote that at one point we passed a sign that said winding road next 76 miles oh my goodness yeah and we were like 200 miles beyond that and we finally got there and it it took us about 10 hours and the first thing somebody said was oh we had a guy (laughs) we had a guy here last week (laughs) (laughs) he had glasses too (laughs) (laughs) asking us lots of questions so yeah It's snack time. It's the variant cereals. It's familiar cereals, but with a brand new twist. Mm. And you'll never guess what what those geniuses have have decided to do with familiar cereals. Yes, they've given it a chocolate spin. 
chocolate variants i mean it's a very 21st century idea of taking a familiar product and just making it slightly more chocolatey don't know if you remember in the 80s they used to advertise the weetabix uh, as sort of cartoon skinheads do you, do you remember that? No, the Weetabix <laughs> yeah, were basically they were all characters, weren't they? The, yeah, they were. They were basically a gang of um, of cartoon skinheads. Who would go around? Who would go around threatening what they considered to be inferior cereals? Oh, and uh, with you know, they had the, they had the full kind of like uh, suspenders and bother boots. It was you know inspired by Jamaican rude boys, but um, was quite quite popular in the. Uh, British working class in the 70s. These Weetabix uh, skinheads, which I'm completely unfamiliar with, were, were they textured like Weetabix or were they yeah, smooth? Yeah. No, they, they looked like Weetabix with eyes, basically, <laughs> and mouths. And little trousers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, and I don't know if it was the case at the time, but looking back, this roving gang of skinheads beating up inferior cereals... There's something a bit ambiguous about that. <laughs> and um, in a way, when I see a chocolate Weetabix, oh, no. I, say, I say it's all come full circle now, isn't it? Society has moved on. <laughs> we can embrace all colours of Weetabix. Society has moved on. We've got essential... Yes, we're embracing Weetabix diversity. I'm actually quite disappointed that Weetabix have done this. It's, right. It seems like they've caved in. <laughs> when I was a child... Weetabix were distinct from other cereals in terms of the toys or the special offers mm. that they would give you. All the uh, sort of Kellogg cereals, there would be some kind of plastic toy, yeah. some immediate gratifying licensed character spin-off. When you ate Weetabix, you collected tokens mm. which you could then exchange for educational books. Yeah, <laughs> did you get the history? Was there a history book? And, <coughs> and it's really good because all the stuff in it is, is like populated by the characters from Weetabix. So it's sort of, sort of teaching you, but at the same time you're kind of going, well, I don't understand which bit <laughs> this is true. <laughs> I guess it was a girl Weetabix like in the Spanish Armada or something. I think, <laughs> yes, I think I, had, um, I think I had the skinhead Weetabix's guide to birds <laughs> or something. But, but there, was, there was this kind of like, stern patrician attitude mm. to breakfast mm. that, that Weetabix seem to symbolise. And now that they've gone the chocolate route, yeah. I mean, it, it's like they've given up. <laughs> you know? No better than there, there is, that barrier has been broken. Mm. You know, it's like, go ahead, kids. You know, apparently you don't have enough chocolate in your diet already. Well, he's gone for two in one bowl. Are they pucks? Do you call them pucks? Or <laughs> Puck is definitely what they should be called. <laughs> you, I, I think Weetabix would probably prefer you to call it a biscuit, wouldn't they? Yeah, they could. I imagine I, they, I, they call I it think a biscuit. I think I just started calling them pucks after reading in... Um, they're mentioned in a William Gibson novel as pucks. Oh, right. and, uh, and yeah, I thought um, they were much better Weetabix are in a William Gibson novel we- Weetabix <laughs> are oddly prevalent in, in sort of like cultural uh, references mm-hmm. uh, you, Spike from Buffy famously enjoys um, crumbled up Weetabix in, uh, in bowls of blood now this is going to be contentious how much milk do you put on your Weetabix I put hardly any on oh. because I don't like it to go too soggy see I'm the opposite I love drowning right, them I'll in go milk. half and half how's that yeah let's go and now they've got milk on, they sort of just look like normal Weetabix to me. They're quite pale, aren't they? They're not mm. a, a sort of rich chocolatey colour. I could enjoy that for breakfast, I think. Tastes like a very, very dilute hot chocolate, cold, obviously. Mm. It's certainly not as chocolatey as I was expecting. Mm. I must confess that uh, at various times in my life I have taken Weetabix and, s- <laughs> and sprinkled hot chocolate powder onto mm. them and then usually hot milk to make a, a really delicious breakfast. This isn't quite as good as that, so no. I would recommend... Do it yourself. 
I don't like the chocolate chips. Mm-hmm. They seem wrong. There are very few in there. And they're very small as well. Oh, this is rubbish, Lee. Why'd you bring this? I don't know. <laughs> I, I do keep going back for more, though. I'm, I'm yeah, having really... said that, I am eating. <laughs> Maybe I'm just really hungry, but this is quite good. I don't, I don't know that I would definitely recommend it over a regular Weetabix, though. No, it's not that much better. No, should we move on? Uh, Choco Puffs? Perhaps. These look more now, exciting. Now, this is a regular... Co- they, they haven't changed the Honey Monster. Yeah. He's still... I it's guess still honey. Caucasian. <laughs> <laughs> still is, is there any more that a honey? I don't know. <laughs> could have backed him up. It would have been really exciting if, if it was a brown. You know, if the honey monster had dreadlocks, that would have been quite a look. But uh, he now he still looks a bit like a sort of um, hippie ex-football player. You know when sometimes you see those Mexican kids who've got hair all over their faces. Have you seen those? No. You're not. You're not. You don't read sort of like old copies of the Fourteen Times and whatnot. Oh, no, like like the uh, the freaky circus yeah, hairy circus child. Hairy child. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And uh, I, I recently watched uh, Christmas's uh, Four Lions movie oh, in which there that. was there is some debate as to whether the honey monster is a bear or is in fact just a monster. <laughs> He has, uh, well, what's weird about him is that he doesn't have a nose. There's definitely a missing nose. Well, ha- you can't say it's, it's, it, it may be under the hair. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. And, and also, do you, do you imagine that, like, the honey monster not having a nose, he has no idea what his urine smells like? Well, I, I imagine he has an impaired sense of taste, which affects my judgment <laughs> about what I eat that he recommends, so... Is he the creator of the cereal, or is he just... They've got him on board <laughs> later the on. The biggest enthusiasm. <laughs> <laughs> brings me back to uh, Mr. Cadbury's parrot. <laughs> is it possessive or not? Yeah, oh, it does lay the eggs. the looks of the box, it looks like it's the, the full name of the cereal is Honey Monster Choco Puffs. Mm, they, need to, they need to build up that backstory a bit more, don't they? I'd be quite interested to find out what the connection is. It's not clear if, if it's honey-flavoured... Or it's just merely endorsed by a character with the word honey in its name. Mm. Um, there was a, there used to be a, uh, a, a licensed product from some cartoon characters called Snookums and Meat. Mm. And, uh, and then the product also had a warning on it said, product does not contain meat. <laughs> <laughs> meat was merely the name of the, of the character that they'd licensed. feel frightened like when when you do you kind of go to these places because you 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 are excited by the feeling of f- fear and uncertainty like i was thinking about it even with the um the tottenham eyes holler stuff it's really kind of funny and um and uh, ironic that you end up helping him effectively um it's really funny but like um i don't know i'm quite interested in that because a lot of the stuff you do a lot of the reason that that it's interesting is because other people wouldn't do it. And I'm definitely not the sort of person to want to do it. Um, yeah, you know, I do go to these sort of dangerous situations, you know, quite often. And the last one was um, about six months ago, I was in Seattle with this real-life superhero called Felix Jones, and he um, took me to, like, this kind of crack gag at four in the morning in Belltown, and they were, like, saying, if you don't leave, we're going to shoot you. Um, they were saying, you know, you're coming here in your super suits, like fun and games, and this isn't fun and games to us. This is real life. Is what all the crack dealers were saying to the um, superheroes, and I found myself like kind of ostentatiously nodding at everything the crack dealers were saying because I was thinking, you know, if the shooting starts, 
maybe they'd think to shoot around. Maybe they'd remember that I was like... Shoot around me. Yeah, they'd shoot around me. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But on that occasion, I thought, this is actually really fucking stupid, you know, that I'm in this genuinely life-threatening situation. I'm 44, and I've got a 13-year-old kid, and, you know, this is kind of stupid. But I'm presumably going to have to put myself in dangerous... continue to put myself in dangerous situations because it's how I get to write the stories that I write... There's no other way of doing it. Do you feel like you've trapped yourself into doing this, or do you do you, do you still kind of you're nodding? Do you still kind of enjoy it? Yeah, well, I'm sort of trapped by. My, I mean, I do enjoy it. Yeah. Uh, what I really enjoy is is, is telling stories, mm. and because I can't make them up, but I really want to tell sort of stories of crazy adventures. The only way to do it is to have the adventures. Mm. So, so I'm sort of trapped because of that. I don't love do I don't love being in Belltown at four AM with crack dealers. But are you thinking like all the time this will be amazing when I've finished, I'll be able to write this up and it'll be oh, it'll be so funny and yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, at the time I'm thinking I would sacrifice the story for my life. You know? <laughs> um, yeah. But then as soon as I'm back at the hotel, I'm thinking, Well thank fuck, you know, mm. thank God I did that. In the psychopath test, you're kind of, as, as the sort of first half of the book especially goes on, you, you're becoming more and more anxious that you might be like corresponding to some of the things on the checklist, and it's it's a little like a bit of a joke. How much of that is just kind of for the book, and how much did you really think that you were starting to turn? Because because you say at one point, um, you know, if you're reading this and you think you're a psychopath, you're probably not. And I was thinking, well, I don't think I'm a psychopath, so <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't bode too well. Maybe. I'm pretty sure you're not a psychopath. <laughs> Well, I never thought I was a psychopath. But what really I I did realise was that, for instance, in journalism, one adopts psychopathic traits all the time. Which which ones? Um, Lack of empathy. Um, Do anything to get a story. Lack of remorse. You know, it's if you tell a story. I mean, just look at the the Levson inquiry. The things that those people did to get stories um, were synonymous with psychopathic character traits. I'm, I'm not saying all the people who chased Sienna Miller down the road were psychopaths, but I'm saying they definitely were like a kind of m- modelling psychopathic traits. Which is interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of people would assume that a good journalist has to be empathetic, has to understand the point of view of the person they're mm. reporting on or, or, or interviewing or understanding in whatever way. No, absolutely, I agree with you. I, I wish that journalism was more empathetic. A few years ago... I, I sort of made the decision that from now on I was only going to be empathetic. You know, my, my whole sort of way of telling stories would be empathetic. So I would always try and see the story from the perspective of the person I was I was hanging out with or interviewing. And, and other people do that too, of course. But an, an awful lot of journalism, you know, exactly, isn't it? It's about it's about attacking. It's about it's about massage. It's like what my friend Adam, Adam Curtis said to me, and I quote it in the book. He said, "You know, we're like medieval monks. You know, we uh, will go, we'll, we'll travel to the to the other side of the world with our notepad in our hand, and we'll stitch together a kind of tapestry of that person's craziness. You know, we we wait for the gems, and the gems are always." The mental disorders, they're always like the kind of extreme aspects of our interviewee's personality and we'll ignore the stuff that's kind of boring and that's what makes us like these kind of medieval monk tapestry makers because we'll ignore the boring stuff, we'll just leave it on the floor and we'll stitch together a tapestry of their craziness and that's what we do and we all know it's what we do but we none of us really like to talk about it. But journalism's not as bad as other industries. I mean, journalism, if you're looking at kind of 
industries that are basically psychopathic. Because Renu and I both work in advertising, so... Is it well, like, yeah, yeah, Jesus, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, advertising is worse. PR is worse. And then, obviously, banking is worse. Um, <laughs> banking gets a hard, hard, <laughs> hard time these days, doesn't well, it? Well, that's true. Uh, the, American, the, the American health insurance industry is worse. I mean, insurance in general is pretty bad, and health insurance is, like, appalling. You haven't mentioned politics yet. Yeah, um, I mean, I, I th- I'm sure I, I never really, I know it kind of sounds odd, but I've never really thought massively about sort of psychopathy of politics. Um, I Don't mean, tell I'm, Louis Theroux, he'll be on the case. I'm sure it's true. What's definitely true is that people who rise to the top are almost always people who, who suffer from some form of d- mental disorder. You know, I've no doubt about that at all. But it's not always psychopathy. It can be, it can be, you know, bipolar disorder. It can be, you know, a sort of just a psychological need, you know, a sort of itch that you constantly need to scratch. The other thing that you do, John, is you put yourself into stories in a way that makes people sometimes use the word gonzo journalist about you. Is yeah. that something that you identify with? Yeah, I mean, I don't identify with the kind of drug-taking aspect of gonzo journalism. Uh, And I think a lot of people who kind of got inspired by people like Hunter S. Thompson got inspired by them in the wrong way. Right. Uh, I remember there was this kind of terrible rash of, like, NME journalists going, uh, it's four o'clock in the morning and I've just taken a whole load of coke and I'm about to interview Iggy Pop. Oh, God, the bats are coming from the ceiling. And it's like, you know, that's... I I felt that was, like, really missing the point of what... Tris Thompson was trying to do, <clears throat> you know, which was obviously about the sort of clash of the counterculture. And there was something appropriate about Huntress Thompson taking LSD and then invading a sort of police convention in Las Vegas. Whereas if you do that with an interview with Iggy Pop, it's just stupid and self-indulgent. Because so, then both of you are on drugs. Yeah. And also, <laughs> like at least one of you needs to be straight yeah. in that situation. <laughs> and also it's not exactly making a kind of statement on, you know, the kind of way the world works, you know. It goes back to people like Frederick Wiseman and the Maisels brothers and Pennebaker, weren't, weren't they, like, in the 60s? And that was even before people like Tom Wolfe. I, I think, you know, that they were the first people who were kind of saying, there's no point in pretending we're not here. Um, and that's really where it comes from. Mm. It's like, if you pretend we're not here, then, we're, then you're being dishonest. Um, because everything changes when the journalist enters the room. So that that's, I think that was the... That's the point of it for me. But also, I think I can totally see the benefit in um, making myself a character in my stories. Because, I mean, I find it a really easy way of telling the story. And, and I just find that a very natural way of writing. I'm on my way to see this person and, you know, we have this thing and I'm flawed and he's flawed. And, mm. and for me, that's just the most natural way of writing. Once you've got a book pretty much finished, you should do, like, I go through it one time to eliminate, to try and eliminate cliche, and then you can do another draft where you can take out any time when you're not when you're in there for a superfluous reason. So, like if I'm just saying something because I thought I was being funny or something, you know, to take that out. So, so I think it's important if you are going to put yourself in the story to make sure that you're always doing it in the right way. You're never doing it, and hopefully not doing it in a kind of self-indulgent way. You can't feed frosties. <laughs> to a real tiger. That's nobody recommends that. Lee, tell us about the uh, the last breakfast cereal that we'll do today. Um, then well, the... this is Kellogg's new hot oat crumbly with fruit. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the most remarkable thing about this is its packaging design. I don't really want to insult the professional that's clearly done this. <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if they got a, like a work experience person to come in and knock one out. If you've if you've seen the Quaker Oaks packaging, it's gorgeous. <laughs> this this looks like own brand um, <laughs> packaging, but with a Kellogg's logo on it. <laughs> It's the sort of thing you would, like, you know, like at school in the design technology lesson, it's like, redesign the cover of thing, and it's like that was the winning, like, 15-year-old's effort. <laughs> well, maybe even the second I've, place. I've, I've centred everything, yeah. <laughs> Centre align everything. So, uh, let's see. Microwaveable cup, jug of milk. Stir the milk, pour it over the, ho- over the cereal, and enjoy. Okay, so we've got so a, that's, a that's sort of um, cereal there, lumpy cereal mm. with, with bits of banana, like a, raisins. Like one of those really unhealthy mueslis, basically. Yeah. Mm. Well, this looks quite nice. After mocking the packaging. Immediately, immediately don't approve of the hot milk decision. <laughs> I don't think it needs that. They don't advise that it can be enjoyed cold. <laughs> I think it'd be much better cold. Mm. So, uh, so, you know, if you're tempted... <laughs> Do you understand that you've gone beyond the bounds of the manufacturer's recommendations? Well, they, they have called the stuff hot oat crumbly, so yeah. they're not going <laughs> to suggest you eat it cold. But I think you're right, Elena. I think it would work mm. much better cold. Well, how's that thing that I approve of we were talking about before with cereal, that you could easily eat it out of the packet as a dry snack and it would be it just like, as delicious? It is like a trail mix, mm. isn't it? Exactly. Very rich. It's got all the fruits. <laughs> all of them. Mm. As, 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 as many fruits as an Englishman can think of. <laughs> Plus cranberry. From, from the box, it looks like it's got apple in it, but there's yeah. there's no it's apple listed on the... Uh... Oh, no, no, there is. There is apple listed here. Sorry. So what's the full list, then, we've got? Um, raisins, coconut, banana chips, sweetened cranberry fruit pieces, which is given as cranberry, sugar, glycerol, citric acid, apple... It's quite complex the way that they've they've used uh, curly brackets and square brackets <laughs> and commas, and it's not it's not really it, it does look like this ingredients list will compile. <laughs> it, has, it has a very a very uh, if, distinct if cranberry piece then. <laughs> Layla, I've got um, I've got a surprise treat for you. Oh, well, is it's it a not... red dwarf quiz. <laughs> Fuck! How did you guess? Uh, yes, I have got a red dwarf quiz for you because the last one seemed to go quite well. Right. I was going to do a shift run stop quiz uh, to see how well you remember it after a year. Oh god! But it was a lot of effort. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> fucking listen back to all those. Efforts. Yeah, I thought about doing one on you, and and then I thought. Nah, there's, there's more to life than what we did in the past. Exactly, we should move on. Move on. Exactly. Let's, move let's on think and look instead. Some, look at some old Red Dwarf episodes <laughs> from 1989. Of Red Dwarf. So I'm going to get that out of my bag. Nice. Uh, hold, hold that for a sec. I will. I'm in computers. <laughs> I'm in computers. It's quiz time. That regular spot listeners will all remember from every episode of Shipwrecked Stop. We're just making up new features. Let's do quiz time every episode, that's good. I've got prepared a bunch of Red Dwarf questions. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, none of them are the same questions that I asked you last time we did this, a year and a bit ago. But who knows? Yeah. Okay, so the crew, uh, except of course Lister and his pregnant cat, were all killed by a radiation leak in the first episode. But what was the name of the chemical element that leaked? Is it a real 
element. I checked, and yes, it turns out it is. Oh, you had to check? Yeah. So it's quite obscure. It's an obscure radioactive yeah. element that has various isotopes. I'm not sure that the one that they name is actually a real one, but it's, mm. if it helps, it's a single-digit number. So it's something Eum, oh, yeah. and then a single-digit number. Does it start... What letters does it start with? Can it starts you... with a C. Is it cesium? It's cadmium. Oh. I thought that was quite obscure, but yeah. uh, the rest of them are, are a bit That's easier. Hard. Okay, who was the captain of Red Dwarf? Captain Hollister. Yes, he was the only one in the first... He uh, was American. Yeah, he was the only American in the whole, the whole of the first series, really. Where yeah. the cat picked up his accent is, is another issue. Yeah, where did that come from? Who owns, which corporation owns Red Dwarf? The Jupiter Mining Corporation. Yes, that was good. And Holly, the onboard computer, mm. has an IQ of what? 6,000. That's exactly right. Sometimes. Yeah, it does yeah. vary, yeah. but I think the, the most frequently used number is... It has a six in it, as he says. <laughs> and, of course, Holly was played by two different actors yes. over the course of uh, the Lifetime Red Dwarf. Yes. Name them for me, please. Oh, come on. Oh, come well, on. is it too easy for you? <laughs> Norman Lovett and Hattie Avery. Oh, that was, that was quick. You didn't even think about that. Yes, I know the cast. There are very, very many of them. Okay, the so uh, if that was too easy, yes. can you tell me which series Norman Lovett was Holly for and uh, which series Hattie Hayridge was Holly for Norman Lovett was series one and two Hattie Hayridge was series three four and five dead right so far and Norman Lovett did he come back for series seven maybe or eight it was series seven and series eight he missed out series six yeah i missed out series seven and eight yeah <laughs> they stopped i mean after about series six they stopped I'm so, yeah. bad. I'm so worried about the new series are you looking forward to it no no i'm actually not i'm not looking forward to the fact i'm gonna to have to watch it as well why are you gonna to have to watch it uh, well, i suppose you couldn't not really it's yeah i mean it's that completest thing although having said that i don't think i've seen any of series eight yeah i watched that back to earth one where they mm. drove around in a stupid car that was really embarrassing <laughs> and sad <laughs> That's awful. Yeah. no the last the last couple were, were very dire how many episodes of red dwarf usa have ever been aired i'm gonna go with one but it might be it might be two it's actually zero is it zero yeah, yeah. trick question trick question they, they tried the pilot twice Okay. Two different teams. Right. Neither of them any good. <laughs> <laughs> Very bad. Um, yeah, it yeah. doesn't quite translate, does it? Pretty poor. <laughs> so, final question. The Gulf War affected the running order of which Red Wolf series? Oh, well, Gulf War was 1990, 91? Yeah, 91. And it started in 89. <clears throat> so it would have been series probably, you see the one every year. I'm going to say series three. Oh, it was close. It was actually Series 4. Oh, okay. And the reason apparently was, and the BBC were a bit sensitive about the way that Meltdown, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which was a bit kind of, the, bit wary. <laughs> yeah. Um, they decided that, that that couldn't really run until the end of the series. And it actually meant that the order, the order of the series changed. Okay. So they put them on the video in the order that they showed on television, even though that wasn't the original order that they hoped for. Interesting. Yeah. I never knew that. I feel like I'm learning more about Red Dwarf. It's Isn't it? No, yeah. that was kind of a history question rather than a Red Dwarf question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When was the Gulf War? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Do you remember that? Do you remember the Gulf War? Yeah, because um, I took part in a thing from Pebble Mill where you could write to a soldier and then Brilliant. write and send them things at Christmas and what stuff. What did you send? We made some little things out of Fimo. 
like little little, yeah, little modelling clay that hardens into. And it. I just think now, like, what what a fucking weird thing! <laughs> like, imagine like some fucking twenty five year old squaddy just getting all these weird little presents from a child in England. I bet <laughs> they loved it. I bet they. I bet it warmed the cockles of their heart that someone, even if it was a what ten, ten year old girl, nine year old girl, was thinking about them. I bet they. I bet it, they fought all the harder. <laughs> Maybe I don't think these things were particularly well made. Also, how how well did they travel? That's what I'm worrying about. But like, yeah. So, so do you remember the the war? Do you remember old KAD and whatever? Yeah, I remember yeah. watching the footage on television and being a bit a bit frightened. Yeah. I remember being a bit sort of generally afraid of mm. wow. I don't know what's going on, but it's not good. Mm. But it was quite quick. I mean, it wasn't a long war. No, it was quite a short contained war. Yeah, they didn't come over here. <laughs> we were fairly safe in uh, in North Dorset. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we weren't going out turning the signs round to confuse the invaders. Oh, nice, sort like of a lower low tip there. <laughs> <laughs> like in the olden days. Hello you, this is Ian Lee, and you're listening to Shift Run Stop on like an iPod or maybe a cassette. What's, what's the phrase that we used to use? Jewhag? Yeah, that's the phrase that Dave Schneider used to describe me. Um, so why, why, why do you think that is? Because oh, like I find us annoying. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're probably exposed to them more frequently than, than I am. Why am I... I don't know why I'm into... Well, Dave Schneider, because we're sort of friends, well, I haven't seen him for a while, but he had a theory that it's because when I was growing up, I moved house all the time and was quite kind of... My background's quite disrupted. And uh, he was like, yeah, you're, you're relating to the, the landless people. The, you yeah. Know, this is what it's about. Like in the, in the wilderness um, for 40 days. Yeah. No, Jesus was like, 40 days and 40 nights, right? And... Uh, how long was G- and the Jews were in? I'm thinking 40 years in the in Exodus. We're talking about Exodus, yeah, right? Moses. Yeah. So yeah, why, we why do we that? like why do we like Jewish people? Are yeah. we moving on from that? Well, you, you you say we there as though you assume that I do. Well, as a, as a podcast, a collective, <laughs> we seem to be a lot of them. I think, and this is maybe a bad like extremist. You can tell me this is somehow anti-Semitic, but I think that <laughs> Jewish people are funnier than I think on on average they have a, a comedic talent which is to do with being self-effacing and stuff yeah I, I mean I definitely get on a sort of in, I sort of just automatically get on well with Jews mm. we, we, we tend to sort of we kind of connect you know we do even though I'm, I'm not in, at all on a kind of religious level but there is something about uh, yeah sort of self-effacing constantly questioning you know, sort of not satisfied. You know, we're not, we're not, mm. we're, we're rarely self-satisfied people. Mm. Um, I, I suppose those are the kind of good Jewish traits. <laughs> now list the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> bad ones that we secretly rule the world <laughs> through the Bilderberg. Group. Yeah, killed your lord. <laughs> Drink yeah, blood. Th- thanks for that, <laughs> Jews. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the use of humour in your work. Is it something that you consciously set out to include or do you find it's just part of the way that you work? What's what's your kind of approach to making people laugh? No, I, I do const- consciously set out to to try and be funny, especially if the stories are quite dark. Yeah, I want to, you know, to me it's a kind of achievement if I've, if I've said something, if I've kind of written something funny. We, we talked before with Andy Nyman about kind of tension and the use of comedy and horror. And I wonder in your storytelling whether there's a similar sort of thing going on where it's kind of a way of about magic as well. Yeah, right. The yeah, of magic and the rhythm of comedy. You don't you don't get very mm. many magicians who don't have a sense of humour. I tell you what, I think comedy is harder than tragedy, but tragedy is quite often rewarded more than comedy. It's not a surprise that Peter, who who wrote Men's Day at Goats, is being hailed for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. 
people tend to sort of reward tragedy more than comedy and, and that doesn't you know, that sort of forgets that comedy is actually harder to get right than just, I just want to write funny books. I, um, I sort of feel that's my, that's my job. What, what kind of writing did you do when you first started? Were you writing at school or at, like at college? Or? Not really. I, I, I did a bit at college. I had my, um, I had a, a page in the college newspaper and the first sort of compliment I, I, I really had was uh, David Cardiff, who's, who's dead now. He was one, one of the teachers at college, and he was married to Lynn Barber, who's like one of my one of my journalist heroes. And he said, I remember I was like 18 or 19, and he said that, yeah, that I was the only decent writer on the, on, on the whole college magazine. And then I started writing for Smash Hits, like at the same age when I was like 18 wow yeah which was amazing um, making film reviews for smash hits and music reviews what, what sort of year would this have been what uh, it would have been 1985 okay or 80, yeah, yeah 80, 1985 it's probably the era that we were growing up reading smash hits right I mean, I, but I wasn't sort of much older I was only uh, well I was only 18 yeah he's making himself sound young yeah. here. <laughs> he's, he's already admitted he's at least 44 <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm exactly 44. <laughs> um, but I was clearly... I was, I was managing a bank... I was, not only was I working with Frank Sidebottom, but I was managing a bank called The Man from Del Monte. And the thing that was vexing me was that I... The Man from Del Monte, I thought and still feel, were, like, incredibly talented. And the only reason why they never made it big was because they were being managed by me. And I was just, <laughs> I was just not a good manager. I think I ruined their, their careers because they were just as good. I mean, they were never going to be, like, really big, but they were just as good as Bell and Sebastian and the, mon- the monochrome set. We, we were slightly the victim of circumstances because we were quite middle class, and it was exactly when working-class music mm-hmm. was becoming uh, popular, like the Happy Mondays and... Uh, stone roses and the inspiral carpet so we were slightly uh we were, we were slightly kind of victims of the class struggle but i remember like we'd do gigs where we were the headliners and we were being supported by the inspiral carpets in 808 state wow yeah that happened quite a lot um i don't think the happy mondays ever supported us but it was that sort of thing and then they all became sort of huge and, and i do think it was partly to do with me i mean the happy mondays had nathan mcgough who was like you know, like way more aggressive than I was. And the Stone Roses had this guy called Gareth, um, who again was like vicious sort of. They're all like kind of gangsters, Nathan and Gareth and all those people. And and I was just sort of soft and gentle. And and uh, uh, so anyway, so we so we 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 never made none of us ever made it. And to, so to make money, we were writing for the local listings magazine, which was City Life, uh, where um, Mark Commode was was working as well. And I was just, you know, obviously better at that. So it was more circumstance than 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 sort of desire. Mm. It was it was it was just clearly the thing I was good at. It was always the same sort of stuff. I remember being really inspired when I was living in Manchester. There was a guy called Luke Jennings who's still around. Um, he writes ballet reviews and novels now. But at the time, he was doing these kind of portraits of eccentric people in the Sunday Correspondent, which is now obviously defunct, but. And I remember I read this article, um, I was probably about 19 or 20 by now, and it was an article about um, a professional Andrew Lloyd Webber lookalike <laughs> and how he was getting like lots of work and the, the other lookalikes were basically saying that he's beginning to think he is Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember thinking it was just like the funniest thing I'd ever, I'd ever read. And, and 
it was like a sort of road of Damascus moment <laughs> for me to write kind of silly things about crazy people. And so I started writing for the Sunday Correspondent. Yeah, writing things exactly like that. I was just totally copying Luke Jennings. Was that about the time that you started working on radio in, in Manchester? Yeah, yeah. Um, basically, the Muffin Del Monte fired me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and weirdly, um, this kind of angel came out to save me and it was Terry Christian and uh, said come and work with me on the radio station and then he got a job he got the job presenting the word and I took over his show and uh, Craig Cash was on just after me and Caroline Hearn was on just after Craig and and the three of us and I, I was like seven till ten and then Craig was ten till one in the morning and then Caroline was one in the morning till five in the morning. And, uh, and it was amazing. We had the whole building to ourselves, like me, Craig and Caroline. And, you know, we, we probably had like virtually no listeners. But what radio station was it? It was called KFM in Stockport. OK, right, so it's local yeah. area one, right? Yeah, Stockport. It was like basically South Manchester and North Cheshire. Mm. Uh, it was just lovely. I'd still be there now if it wasn't for the fact that this guy called John Ethington took over the radio station and fired us all. Um, and you know what? Craig is still angry about it, and so am I. Even though Craig's got on to write The Royal Family and Early Doors and Mrs Merton, he's still mad about being fired from KFM, and so am I. And both me and Craig would still be there if we hadn't been fired. It was perfect. What did you do after that? What happened was there was a campaign to get me and Craig reinstated that was quite big in like the Manchester Evening News and stuff. Word got round to Time Out in London that there was these two people in Manchester, me and Craig, who were like causing a bit of a stir. We'd been fired and Victor Lewis Smith had been writing the column in Time Out and he was just reaching the end of his tenure. And for some reason, I don't quite know why, because I'd only written, I'd written like two pieces for Time Out while I was doing the radio show. Um, they, they offered me Victor's column. And that opened doors into places like The Guardian and... Yeah, and BBC Two. I got my own series on BBC Two as, as a result of writing that Time Out column. And so from after that, I mean, that was a bit of a disaster as well because the series was really quite bad. The Ronson Mission. Ronson Mission, yes. yeah. The only thing I can remember about Ronson Mission is um, something to do with a, a double-decker bus and Cliff Richard. And, yeah, and, and Janet Ellis. Janet Ellis, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And I really enjoyed it. <laughs> that was quite, quite good, young. actually. <laughs> there was a few bits in it that were quite good. We did this celebrity charity pop video at one point. Uh, we tricked all these celebrities into doing this charity pop video called Let's Stamp Out Crime by Any Means Necessary. And I wrote this incredibly right-wing uh, sort of vigilante song, uh, which I can sing to you if you'd like. Yeah, okay. Please do. Uh, we've yeah. seen them on our streets with their evil minds doing their evil crimes. They're not like you and me. That's why we sing. And then we had like all these people like Rusty Lee and Daniela Westbrook going, let's stamp out crime. And Nicholas Parsons and people from Brookside. It's like a brass eye stunt. It was, yeah. Bef yeah. Well before. Years yeah. before, yeah. So that was good. And the one that you just mentioned with Janet Ellis and Cliff Richard, where we were putting together obsessive fans with the pe with the objects of their adoration. <laughs> see what happened. Yeah, to see what happened. <laughs> and, uh, what, what did happen? <laughs> the bit I remember best of all was I dressed up all these Cliff Richard fans and pretended that they were the crew to meet Cliff Richard. So, so I turned up to interview Cliff Richard with like a kind of 20-strong crew and they were all kind of <laughs> obsessive Cliff Richard fans. I just remembered like... Um, <laughs> as we were walking towards Cliff Richard, you see Cliff Richard in the background... 
and I, and, you, and you see me saying to all these to this kind of massive crew all holding booms so it's like <laughs> so it's like obvious to Clifford that there was something up how many microphones does this guy need <laughs> yeah exactly and I remember saying to him so what did I tell you and one of them <laughs> says don't do anything weird <laughs> <laughs> no, no screaming yeah so that and then yeah and we had um um, so actually, you know, maybe the transmission wasn't that bad, but but it did. I remember when Michael Jackson, who was head of BBC Two at the time, left. The Guardian did a thing about Michael Jackson's five best programmes and five worst programmes, and transmission was one of his five mm. worst programmes. Oh. Yeah, and um, so then I didn't work for a couple of years. Because um, you're so hurt by that. Well, partly because <laughs> no one would. Yeah, no one touch me. <laughs> <laughs> And also partly because um, I didn't want to do it anymore. I, I never enjoyed making the answer mission mm. uh, at all. Actually, it was it felt it didn't feel like journalism. It felt like acting because mm. uh, it was like big cameras, mm. like big crew. Even when we weren't, you know, faking an overly large yeah. crew, it was still a bit of a fucking big crew. So I didn't enjoy it at all. And and um, it was only like about two or three years later when they invented the little cameras for the first time. And then me and this guy Saul Dib went off and made. New York to California, which was a road journey through Norfolk and um, Tottenham Ayatollah. And that, that was done with the tiny little cameras and it was fine after that, it was great. That was like being a journalist again. And also it's like when you've got a big crew, it's all very sort of formalised. I mean, this, that was the thing I hated so much about the Ransom mission was like, you know, because of the, the schedule. So, you know, we'd all meet at seven in the morning and we'd like, get in the bus. And there was like a bus, you know, we'd turn up at someone's house, we'd be there at <laughs> 11 and then we'd have to sit there for two hours where they set up the lights and the cameras. And then you'd have like an hour of like fabricating reality. And then you'd go off to the next thing. And it was like, it was so kind of constricting. But we're talking about Tala. Me and Saul were paid um, like a sort of buyout. So basically we were paid like, well, it was like 16 grand each. And um, Omer lived about four miles away from me in Tottenham. And that was it. We could take as long as we wanted. And we took a year. And there was no like fucking, you know, you've only got between two and three to film. You know, we could do whatever we wanted to, you know. So Omar would say, I'm doing this thing on Saturday. I mean, so would like jump off and go with him. And, you know, it was like, it was real life, you know. And that, that's what was so good about it. A lot of the things that you do seem to involve you driving people places <laughs> and uh, giving people lifts and also people asking you for lifts, which I can't imagine genuinely happens as often as you claim it does. <laughs> but, like, what, what's the deal with that is my question. And did Robert Llewellyn get the idea from you? <laughs> yeah. Well, it happened in Tottenham Ayatollah that yeah. um, Omar said to me, and I was real, Omar said... Uh, you know, I've allowed you into my life now for six months. I want something in return. Yeah. And I said, what? And he said, would you drive me to Office World? <laughs> and so I drove him to Office World and then I drove him to like a secret terrorist meeting in Birmingham. <laughs> and, I, and, and obviously that was kind of really funny. And so, you know, so new to film it all. And, mm. and so uh, that became part of the story. It breaks down the wall between when the story is happening and when the story's not happening. Mm-hmm. That, and we learnt that from, from Tottenham Ayatollah. It's like, so you turn up to interview Omar, and I learnt this totally from Nick Broomfield, you know, you, you turn up to interview Omar, but the more interesting stuff is happening when you're dropping Omar off at, you know, at his next thing. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's when, when everyone's guard is down and it's not a formal situation anymore. So I think car journeys are very good at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, yesterday in Latvia, we, we had a... 200 mile car journey that, that we recorded, you know, during and, and the journey is going to become part of the story. 
through, we had a Christmas card. Um, wow. I know. For me and you. <laughs> like, oh, after having from a listener. For a year. From a, from a listener, and uh, he's called Carl, and he came to an event that I spoke at about Death Stars, actually. Oh, um, wow. Called Spacetacular by former Shift Unstop guest Helen Keane. Oh, she I love was, Helen. She's brilliant, isn't she? Great. She, she was, um, it was her event. And, um, and Carl was there wearing his uh, Star Wars t shirt. He emailed me afterwards and said, I've just realised that it's you from Shift Run Stop, my favourite podcast. Aww. And um, he said, I especially enjoyed all the science ones, and the Helen Keane one was obviously his favourite. And uh, he said, You know, please enjoy this Christmas card to, to you and Rue. Have a lovely Christmas. Oh, brilliant. Hello, <laughs> um, Carl. Thank you very much. And it is a picture of the Starship Enterprise. Oh, thank you. Uh, happy Christmas, Carl. Yeah, happy Christmas. That was lovely. Thank you for thinking of us. Very, That's very our nice. first, uh, first Christmas card this year. Yes, I've got something for you as well. Have you? Yeah. You didn't need to do that. Well, it's free. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> Star Wars, a vulture droid. This this looks like it's not from classic Star Wars. This no. is a, a Lego. Okay, er, er, everyone listening at home, um, if you're in front of a computer, you can Google um, Lego three zero zero double five, which is the vulture vulture droid set, and it oh. looks very nice. It's it's uh, it's got lots of nice curving parts. I love how Lego um, give all their. All their models a number, like a, oh, like yeah. a Maplin kit. Totally. You, you've got to know the numbers. Do you think it sounds a bit broken? No. It's, oh, right. <laughs> it's, it's in pieces. You build it. Can you tell me, because I've seen a lot of Lego over the last year, and I've missed you and to talk to about oh, it. Oh, I've missed you too, Layla. Because there have been many like Lego situations that I thought Rue would be the perfect guy. Rue knows about Lego. Um, I've been but, selling it again, by the way. I wasn't know you were selling it. Yeah, back on the old eBay. I put a little advert on the For the show. this. Oh. <laughs> no, I won't sell this. I'm going to build it. I'll build it on the train on the way home. Do you feel like having, for example, this Lego kit mm. has some studs on some of it? Mm. Does that look shit or is that like authentic? The technique and the style of this kit is actually quite nice and right. adheres to my principle of Lego, which is that you don't necessarily need to hide all the studs. There are some people who go for like a, a pure... Right. Using the studs not on top approach yes. will hide all the studs as much as they possibly can. I actually quite like seeing that it is Lego and that it's not some you know kind of pre-built thing. Right. Um, so no, I think Lego should show its kind of its rough edges occasionally. When I was little, you used to get the odd Lego thing like a Lego castle and stuff, mm. um, and it looked quite quite like it was made of Lego. You could still tell. Yeah. But. I feel like the more Lego things I see, the less they look like Lego. The more they're kind of they've got more sort of sculpted pieces and yeah. covered up and shapes. And there are some really good slash bad examples of that. So Bionicle is a, a sort of Lego where a lot of the pieces are made specifically to be like big mecha robots. Yeah. So you know if you're not building something that looks like it lives in the Bionicle universe. It makes me think, well, is that, is that really Lego then? I mean, that's a kind yeah. of a sub-genre of Lego which is very stylized and has its right. own unique approach. It's not to say that you can't use it in other Lego things, but it would be more difficult, and mm. I, I'm less of a fan of that. I'm, I'm quite a purist with Lego. I like it to... I like a piece to exist in lots of sets. Mm. If there's a, a one-off piece that you only see in one set, then... That's less interesting to me. Mm. It's kind of been built to ta- very tailored to a specific need. Yeah. It makes me think it's cheating a little bit. Mm. Well, but every piece in here I recognise, and that's always a good sign that you think, oh, okay, I know, oh, okay. I know that I've seen, you know, I could build this out of other Lego, or I could make, if I wanted to, I could make another one. Well, that always makes me very happy. It's good. Thank you very much. Oh, happy Christmas. Yeah, I hope you enjoy it. Yes, yeah. and to you. First, I got a call from Catelyn Moran saying you're going to get a call from Robbie Williams and, uh, you know, be, be prepared. 
So then, so then brace yeah, brace yourself. And uh, so then a couple of hours later, I, I got this message on my answer phone, which is about three minutes long from Robbie Williams, basically saying he was in Blackpool shooting a video and he wanted to spend a night in a haunted house and could I uh, set it up for him? Please fix it for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're, you're the weirdos, you'll fix it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I emailed all these um, kind of people saying, you know, dear lady, blah, blah. I hear that if the portrait in your drawing room is moved, a ghost manifests itself. I have been contacted by the pop star Robbie Williams. <laughs> <laughs> Can he and I possibly spend a night in your house? And everyone wrote back to say, you know, our house is definitely haunted. <laughs> oh, yeah, Robbie is welcome anytime. I said at the time, you know, that they were like, all these kind of duchesses were throwing their ghosts at Robbie like they were their <laughs> debutante daughters. <laughs> And then Robbie said, oh, I'm sorry, John, I'm, I can't really be bothered to spend the night in a haunted house. I sort of thought, oh, what a tease. Yeah. I thought it was happy. No wonder Robbie Williams and ghosts get on so well. They both only manifest themselves when it suits them. Uh, so um, we were going to go on this psychic cruise together to meet Sylvia Brown, the evil psychic. She basically specialises in the parents of missing children on the Montel Williams show. It's like the worst sort of psychic. And then Robbie didn't want to do that because he felt he didn't want to be kind of stuck on a cruise, you know, with no escape. (laughs) I kind of understand. Imagine if there was like some mad Robbie Williams fans on the cruise. It's like you can't run away if you're on a cruise. You just run along with you. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But we ended up going UFO hunting in Nevada together. which is nice. And so we became friends for a while, but but I suppose our sort of friendship was sort of went concurrently with the story. Mm. Um, so that's kind of different. If you remember Nick Pope, one of our early episodes. He was 10, there that perhaps. night. He was there. So, yeah, so he talked to us about Robbie mm. Williams and yes. how he met him. Do you remember? I and he do, was saying yeah. that he had a big beard or something and he didn't recognise him. And then he was like, Nick. And like, yeah. you know, he had this whole story about how he ran into Robbie and Robbie knew who he was and he didn't know who Robbie Williams was. And he was like, Robbie Williams, the pop star. Yes. Well, I, I was there. I was you there. there. Yeah. Imagine that. Uh, <laughs> cunt <laughs> like uh, you didn't mention him either exactly uh, yeah he was outside the hotel in Lachlan, Nevada my big memory of that day was um, Robbie had hired a private plane and there was about ten of us um, and we got to the we got to the plane this woman was standing there and she said you know I just want to welcome you you know Mr Williams and friends uh, to the plane what I want to say is uh, Snoop Dogg uses this plane a lot <laughs> what I'm saying is you can do anything and Robbie's friend Brandon there's this kind of long silence and Robbie's friend Brandon said uh, can we stand up as the plane lands <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we did. That's, that was our version. Up as you landed. Yeah, that was our version of anything. It wasn't like coke or sex. It was standing up as the plane lands. Great. It's like surfing. That was my big memory of that day. That was the best thing that happened that day. That's brilliant. Stephanie Posovic, uh, people will know you, I think, from the work that you did on Stephen Fry's book uh, that was published by Penguin electronically. Is that is that fair? Is that accurate? Is that, um, was that you? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, yes, it was me. Um, it maybe depends on who you talk to. Oh. Perhaps for digital folk, uh, they best known me as one of the people that worked on the MyFry app. But before then, I've done a lot of stuff with the visualization of text mm-hmm. and literature. 
and I worked on a project where I um, visualized various aspects of On the Road by Jack Kerouac and then that traveled around the internet. So people might know me from that too. And how did you visualize those aspects? What aspects were they? Well, it was a project I worked on on my MA um, in communication design. And so I was looking at measurable data that I could gather from text. So I was looking at parts of speech or the number of words in a sentence or the overall structure of a book and how it divides into chapters or um, analyzing each sentence according to, I don't know, 12 different themes in On the Road, making visible these underlying um, patterns of numbers, I guess. And I think because of that, that's how I ended up working on that Stephen Fry app. And I used to be a book cover designer. So you were designing covers for Penguin, weren't you? Yes. Um, yeah. How do you design a cover? <laughs> like, how do you go about... Um, well, I worked in Penguin Press, which was the non-fiction and classics uh, division of Penguin. So I did a lot of mostly non-fiction, which is a little bit different than a fiction book cover because a lot of times the non-fiction books aren't written yet when you actually have to design the cover. You don't read the book because there is no book. Do you get a summary? Or yeah, a... you'll get a summary or it'll be uh, a lot of non-fiction books are based on, you know, one article that the author wrote. So you'll look for that. But then some of them um, are just so complicated, like string theory or like mm-hmm. something like that, that where they tell you, oh, these are for people with a degree in physics or <laughs> something like that. And so then I would kind of not read that book. No. I mean, for string theory, presumably you just put a ball of string on the cover every time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's kind of one of the stock sort of images. <laughs> but actually, you know, you just start using the same metaphors that you end up going to over and over. There's certain, like, red, black, and white. Red, black, and white always makes a good cover. <laughs> There's certain typefaces that I would use all the time. Like, um, trade gothic, I definitely use a lot on political books. Impact bold. No, impact. <laughs> what? Chiller. What's chiller? It's a sort of a, a really old font for doing spooky writing. <laughs> I'm really glad I said it now. <laughs> just got that out there. I can just shout some more if you want. No, sorry, carry on. Papyrus. Yeah. Oh, oh, my God. No, I hate that font. Dare you really wash your mouth out. Stephanie, what are you working on at the moment? Um, I've just finished a book. I've just uh, sent the layouts of a version of Alice in Wonderland off to print, but it's um, a version of Alice in Wonderland using the artwork of Yayoi Kusama, this Japanese artist, and she'll have a retrospective at the Tate in February. And I'm doing something with a, a video artist in Australia. He's been doing a lot of work feeding text through Google Translate as part of his body of work, and I'm kind of mapping that process for him. Is this sending uh, text to be translated and then back again? He feeds text through every language in Google Translate and then the outcome is kind of, and uses it to create a new text, I guess. So then I'm creating, I guess, a visualization of that process to fit in with this exhibition. How do you start when you've got some information and you need to visualize it? What What do you do first? How do you decide which route you're gonna go down? I usually freak out a lot, always panic when I'm confronted with lots of data. And then once I can finally get my head around that, then I'll try to see if I can come up with a visual metaphor to best uh, shape that data in a way that alludes to the actual meaning of the data. Well, can you give us an example? Um, Because I'm thinking of USA Today. 
you know, their little infographic things, and I'm sure that's not what you're talking about. No. Like oil drums stacked up, <laughs> graphs made of pictures, that's not what you do. Oh, oh. Like oh. made of clouds. Yeah, exactly. I know, I have one. So um, my brother-in-law and I did, uh, a couple years ago, we did um, the album artwork for this band, OK Go. OK Go, they do the amazing music videos, I seem to remember. Yes, um, it was their, I don't know if they have another album out, but it was for their third album of the blue color of the sky they named it after this old text it's like a pseudoscience text from the 1900s about how blue light or violet light would help and heal various ailments and it was completely wrong um we had to analyze their song lyrics and analyze the text then use that to come up with images use analysis to come up with these images for the the cd booklet um, although nobody buys CDs anymore, do they? Um, well, I was just thinking, OK Go are a band, to me, that live in YouTube. I would never have even considered buying an OK Go album. Exactly. So I'm sure nobody's even seen it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, the, the, there were themes of um, like colour spectrums and prisms and moonlight and rain and thunderstorms and all these things. And so I was trying to find ways of using the forms that are like diamonds and using that as a starting point for creating the visuals. So just to refer back to that, to those themes. How often it succeeds, I'm not quite sure yet. You know, sometimes there's only one thing you can do with data and that's this the way it is <laughs> are, you, are you mathematical do were you good at maths at school and stuff does it does any of that come into it no um like no i didn't get past trig <laughs> trigonometry yeah. soccer tower yeah. yeah oh yeah <laughs> that was good uh, yeah right angle triangles um, um yeah i mean i didn't get past that um i like i just like counting right i like counting and adding things up by hand <laughs> You like the easy things. Yeah, I really do, though. I did, I, I did a project where I created these prints where I, um, I guess, was visualizing, if that's the right word, um, making visible, I like that better, making visible the kind of hidden patterns when you do long multiplication. So when you're using long multiplication, you get this kind of tapestry of all the numbers below the initial calculation. And so I was sort of experimenting with which numbers could be multiplied against each other to make a really beautiful hidden pattern oh, in wow. the, the digits below. Can you remember any of the good numbers that you Nine, had? Nines are good. Nines, yeah. Nines are really good. good. Nines, yeah, you yeah. can get some really good patterns. The reason I'm interested in this is just the hidden numbers in, I guess, in the world. You know, the, everything, all these wonderful mathematical patterns and relationships between different objects with the same numerical patterns, I just think is really exciting. What Stephanie's doing, it seems to me, is quite different to what people like Nicholas Feltron. I always think it... Well, I now think it's Nicholas Fenton. On account is it, of that no, dog. His real name is Felton. <laughs> Nicholas Felton. Felton, not Feltron. That's his like, Twitter like a robot. Not Benton. His alter ego is Feltron. Yeah. Yeah. Now of... He's Facebook, isn't he? Facebook, he's moved um, there. Well, I, I think that a lot of people copied him. The way that people have copied him in his style, in the way that he represents the data that he's mapped about himself and his life and his father's life. This type of thing they're doing, people that copy him isn't very exciting but I think that also like the way that his work is different than mine is that he seems to be mapping a lot of it is very personal and um, I guess now he's at Facebook and he's really big on mapping your personal data whereas I've never really been interested in in analyzing myself but I like searching out um, discovering 
beautiful data sets. So I guess that's the main difference. What should we talk about, Layla? I know. Um, I've watched all the first three Star Wars films. Have you? Since we last spoke. Because all I've been three. doing, I've been doing uh, yeah, the three prequels, uh, because I've been doing a talk about Death Star and why we should build one. When you say the three prequels, you, you mean episode one, two, and three? Yes. Phantom Menace. The old ones. No, the old ones. Oh, they're not the prequels. They're oh. the, they're the, um, <laughs> the originals. <laughs> yes, of course. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. They're the good ones. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. And did you enjoy them? Because this, uh, for, for listeners of, of older episodes of Shiffer and Stop, they might might not ever remember having heard this, but you never really... I mean, you, like, you'd <laughs> seen a bit of some of them, yeah. and you were aware of who Darth Vader was... But you couldn't quote Star Wars, and you barely knew any of the story, really. That, no, that's I, my, no, how I remember. Totally, yeah. I, I mean, it was just utterly mysterious to me. I couldn't tell you what happened in any of the individual films. I, I would have probably said that, you know, Yoda and, and Darth Vader are like on the same side. I just, I just didn't know anything. But now, uh, yeah, no, I really enjoyed them. I thought that uh, Han Solo was really good. He's got a brilliant line which apparently he did off the cuff when Leia mm. says to him I love you and he says I know apparently that wasn't in the script he just made that up is that right yeah, uh, yeah there's lots of bits like um, when the stormtrooper walks into the thing and bonks <laughs> his head that's really funny but some of these classic moments you must have been looking out for because you knew yeah. they were sort of in, in the culture yeah exactly what I didn't know to my surprise I didn't know anything about um, Han Solo getting sort of frozen in a oh, cryogenic thing carbonite that, yeah see see mm. you know of course <laughs> as a boy I read a really funny um blog post about the trash compactor mm-hmm. and it was like why, why is there even a trash compactor on the Death Star like it's a really bad use of space and then <laughs> why don't they just jettison it into space As like every why other do they need to make it smaller yeah first. exactly and also not only smaller but if you remember when they're trapped in it um, the, the walls come in from the sides like in an Indiana Jones oh, film so it just be thinner so you're just creating like as, as they said in the blog post a landscape size like one foot thick piece of <laughs> piece of like hard material but maybe <laughs> they use that for the outer plating maybe that's how they build this, the Death Star the maybe cladding they around the outside of, yeah. out of living room sized slabs of yeah. maybe it's got a slight curve to it it looks flat but maybe it's got a very slight curve and then you just stick them on the outside, like clapping. It's like you just invent. You can't just invent the stuff. The Star Star Wars universe. That's not how it works. <laughs> Actually, I'm not the first. <laughs> I, um, so, of the three films, mm. uh, which did you like the best? Well, I think I really liked the first one. Um, Episode four, A New Hope. <laughs> yes, A and H, as we call it now. <laughs> Um, <laughs> SW A&H that is the best film yeah I think I think that was good and, and I really like the last one um, oh, I, yeah, yeah I know it's I know it's controversial you're not supposed to but the more I read about it the more I enjoyed it because I realised that there was a lot of hidden science for example did you know if you try and build a Death Star the size of France right. um, quite quite close to a planet a moon the size of Endor I should say yeah. um, you will create some pretty severe gravity <laughs> disruption that will probably result in um, in floods, earthquakes, and um, you know, and I wondered if that's why the Ewoks live in the trees because they've just been constantly rocked by the uh, the Earth's crust moving beneath them. Brilliant. Maybe that's why they're so small. That's maybe yeah. Maybe if they got cold. any taller, they'd be sucked towards the <laughs> exactly. Death Star and plucked well, from the gravity. Well, there, there's a suggestion that there's some sort of anti-matter, um, anti-gravity device contained within because obviously there's a unit, there's a bunker unit which is destroyed that's in the middle of the forest of Endor, right? That's, right yeah. uh, that's part. That's what the battle's all about. Right. But it's projecting um, 
an anti-gravity beam to keep the Death Star in place. Um, this is just kind of speculation from Star Wars enthusiasts, but it's the only way that it can work. Otherwise, it would just crash into the moon and, and um, create a, you know, a, a meteorite apocalypse. Interesting. I hadn't considered that, but <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. So it's yeah. holding it up. Yeah, so it's, it's a bit speculative, but, <laughs> but I like it. So there are two Death Stars. Yeah. The first Death Star is destroyed because it contains a spaceship-sized hole for people to fly in. And or to drop missiles into. Yeah, 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 exactly. And uh, which leads directly to its most vulnerable spot. Through the exhaust so, port, I think. Exactly, yes. Yeah. So that's the first one. That, that's at the end of the first film. And so the second film, do we then start, we start seeing second, the second one being rebuilt? The second film, indeed. They are building the second, second Death Star, which is almost ten times larger than the first. I didn't know that. A lot of Star Wars fans don't know. Why do they need such a big one? I mean, it was pretty big the first time around. It could <laughs> blow up planets. Crazy. It's more evil. <laughs> it can fit more evil in. <laughs> well, just, do they need more stormtroopers? Well, the other thing about the second one is it's much faster, so you can pretty much instantaneously go anywhere in the galaxy. Really? Like, with it, yeah, within like a like that. Now, I clicked my fingers. How is this canonical? Because I don't think there's any talk in the film at all about it moving anywhere. It's surely it's more like a planet so, than like a spaceship, isn't it? Oh yeah, no, it has speed. The whole point of it being that you can control the galaxy. Like it's a it's a sort of weapon of mass destruction that is imminently portable. So you can just sort of zap it to any any troublesome planet and just hover it nearby until they start behaving themselves. Like in uh, Gulliver's Travels. Where, you know, everyone knows about the Lilliputians, the little people. Yeah. Uh, there's also the big ones, I can't remember what they're called. Um, and then there's the other one, where everything floaty. And there's the, the prince who lives on a rock that sort of floats above. And they, they hover over cities that they don't like. Ah. Because then they don't get any sunlight and the people below, it's, it's essentially holding them under siege. Yeah. It's just like that. That's brilliant. It's very similar to that, actually. Yeah, that's a quite... I wasn't expecting it to be, but it was. <laughs> a, a Swiftian reference. <laughs> that's a very good Swiftian reference. There you go. You've learned something about Star Wars today. That's um, incredible. And there are, if, you, if listeners are interested in, in more of these um, facts and figures, there are loads on the internet. <laughs> <laughs> Were you always making, like, little books and collecting weird things? So I finally figured out that my mom's job was she was a data analyst. Oh. I had no idea. It took me 30 years to wow. figure out what she does. And she, she can write code and everything. She didn't talk about data at all, but it must have been... Yeah, I obviously got that gene from her. When I came to London when I was 19, I didn't have a lot of money, and then my mom visited me, and she said, I'll let you buy any book from the art shop. And then I picked out John Maida's if that's how you pronounce his name, Maida at Media, which is him using, using code to kind of generate art um, and imagery. Mm-hmm. Um, so using computers in a different way to create visuals. And I think... So that was your way in? Or my that way was in. A, a way in? Yeah, and so I think it probably came through really intensive analysis of, of language. Which is, I, just, I just find it really satisfying mm-hmm. in a really sadistic way to sit there for three weeks and analyze a text mm. line by line and gather all the data from it. So how much of what you do is, is sort of um, technical like using programming maybe and or how much of it is oh. just you collecting stuff manually and Well let me show you some, oh, wow. oh. Oh, got some stuff. Well She's got a pouch. I don't really know I need to learn how to code and I haven't done yet so usually what I do is I can rely on people like my brother-in-law, Greg McInerney, who I've collaborated with before. He can write tools to analyze things for me. Or I've worked with developers. But usually, because I can't do that bit, 
And because what I'm looking for is often not really gatherable by a computer. I do a lot of quick tests by hand. Wow, this is beautiful. Um, yeah, so she's showing us an A4, um, two columns of text, and every sort of fifth or sixth word has been circled or highlighted, and there's numbers under everything, as if she's been counting all the... Uh, this is, this is uh, the beginning of 1984 by George Orwell. Yes, I recognise that. Oh, it was yes, a bright, cold day in April. It's, uh, it relates to the, the project I'm doing with this artist, uh, Baden Palethorpe. And what elements of speech have you circled here? What's I'm, going on? I was trying to find the words that stayed the same between a, the original text and a text fed through the Google Translate machine. Oh, right. Yeah. Interesting. So these are the, the most durable words yeah. after translation and back again. Yeah. I do a lot of things by hand. I'd love to have people help me, but it's just... Um, you know, it's hard to ask for help. Well, oh, no. if, any, if any listener yeah, yeah. would like to help Stephanie... Help me, help just... me stop counting. Um, I, I'd, I'd help. Um, there's a thing, there's a, a library or a number of libraries, I think one of them is called JTAG, um, a parts of speech tagger, which I think you'd quite that, like. I, I, I've seen that? parts of speech, speech taggers, which is incredible. That has definitely helped. Now that I know a little bit more than I did when I began, I will look on the internet for um, as many tools as I can find that are free. But it's just sometimes... But then equally, I do like doing some stuff by hand. It depends. Because sometimes I like the outcome. Like for the On the Road project that I was working on, I've got an entire copy of On the Road that, where every sentence has a number by it. And then the whole thing is highlighted by theme. So just having that record... It becomes a new work in itself, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. So I guess in a situation like that, I kind of like having these extra weird sketches but then um yeah another thing i've been thinking about lately is that i think even like i know i need to automate my process but i like being able to touch the data sometimes and i think i would be wary of if you just use kind of like a stock algorithm or you just feed something in without really thinking about why you're doing it but because it's there that that option is there like a photoshop filter like, yeah, like applying a Photoshop filter to something, I'd be afraid that, I don't know, it needs to have a human touch for me. Hello, I'm Felicity Ford, and I co-run the Sound Diaries website along with Paul Whitty. When you put headphones on, everything becomes interesting because you have a kind of sonic microscope on your ears. The idea is to record life in sound, to document the ordinary, to look more closely at the sounds of our cutlery drawers, our toasters, what it sounds like walking down our street, how does our bus sound. When all sounds are interesting, how do you decide what to document? How do you make a decision about what you will or won't record? Both myself and Paul are interested in writers like Georges Perec, and he develops all of these amazing literary strategies for exploring the everyday. So, you know, he itemised everything that he ate for a year. He wrote about how to organise books, different ways of organising your personal book collections. He wrote that amazing essay, Species of Spaces, which begins in his bed and then writes about his room, then his house and his street, and so on and so on, and he ends up writing about the universe. These are all different strategies for 
documenting the everyday. Um, but in Perec's case, they are literary strategies. And I suppose with the Sound Diaries project, what we're interested in is kind of sonic practices or field recording creativity that can, in a way, do the same thing. How do you edit reality into manageable quantities of information? Some of our earlier projects include Unspectacular February. For this project, I recorded one minute of sound every day in February 2009 in my kitchen. During that month, we hear recordings of my toaster, the microwave, the dishwasher, washing up, running water, of course, the back door opening and closing, the bins, and so on. In the Sound Diaries Sonic Time Capsule project in 2011, I recorded sounds especially from this current time. So technologies like chip and pin or um, Dyson hand dryers or um, things like filling my car with petrol. So recording that sound locates me in this particular era and in this particular society in history. So yeah, we've done lots of different kinds of projects like that. And then some projects that are more straightforwardly a diary. So in the same way that you would get a pen and a paper and you would write something every day, it's kind of like, well, every day maybe you take your recorder and you create a document of that day or you focus on a particular aspect of that day. So one project we did, of course, was vending machines of the British Isles. My interest in vending machines and their sounds have been sparked by the machine in the Richard Hamilton building, which is the building I work at at Oxford Brookes University. And then I ran a workshop at Brooks, and we were documenting the sounds of the building in this workshop that I was running, and, and quite a few people in the group recorded machines. Someone recorded an ATM, and someone recorded the coffee machine. Somehow it seemed to me that the sound of the machine was a lot more interesting than the coffee that it made. Vending machines are very much a part of our lives. We hear them everywhere whenever we go and buy something from a vending machine. In the way that there's kind of two things that happen. If you go to a vending machine and you put some money in, then you get a chocolate bar or whatever. But then we, we like this subversive idea that you go to the vending machine and you get two things you get the thing that you got but then you also get the sound the sonic experience and it's almost like we started using vending machines in a different way so we would go and the idea would be to use it sonically so so that what you're paying for is kind of the sounds which the machine produces as it gives you your crisps Anything else to show us in your magical, mysterious pouch of delights? This is a project that I need to speed up. I was looking at rhyme schemes in NWA straight out of Compton. (laughs) Nice. It's not a sonnet, I assume. No, no, it isn't. So it's just like, it's really hard to find all the rhymes and they're all different rhymes. It's like you've been counting the syllables there as well. Oh yes, these, this is, I was looking at the um, stressed and unstressed syllables. Is it iambic pentameter? 
No, it's just I've had to just listen to it, and I haven't. A love song, it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I'm called off, I got a sod off. Squeeze the trigger, and bodies are hauled off. It's a great love song. There is so, a lovely version of it. Have you heard? Um, yeah. Nina Gordon. Put it on. Listen. Oh, okay. Straight out of Compton. Crazy motherfucker named Ice Cube. From a gang called Niggers with Attitude. When I'm called off, I gotta saw it off. Squeeze the trigger and bodies are hauled off. You too, boy, if you fuck with me. Police are gonna have to come and get me off your ass. That's how I'm going out. For the punk motherfuckers, it's showing out. Basically, what I've realized is it's not all about the rhyme scheme. You've also got to think about the stressed and unstressed syllables in rap. So I haven't done anything with this, but I'm now going to look at a song instead of the entire album. Is it easy to pick out the stressed syllables, or does it take a lot of time and effort and questioning yourself? listening Listening to it over and over. Have you now learned the words to straight out of context? No, you'll just see me there with my headphones. Straight out of context, crazy motherfucker. (laughs) Nodding along with your pen in your hand. So have you, have you learned anything by analysing the stressed and unstressed syllables in Straight Out Compton? Is there ever learning in these things, or is it just like, you know, you come out with something equally as, as beautiful as the NWA song? I don't know if I'm learning. Am I learning? Um, right now I'm just trying to convert the pattern into another pattern so that you can hopefully see that pattern, you know, how they rap a little bit more clearly than if we were just looking at the lyrics. I just like the idea of a 30-year-old middle-class white girl in London, like, analysing rap lyrics is kind of funny that's why but um i mean i would probably pick and i said this i would definitely pick cannibal Ox's the cold vein were i to analyze a rap album i think one of the things that's really maybe why vending machines are interesting or captivating is because you, you don't know how they work what goes on inside a vending machine? And uh, contact microphones are brilliant for capturing hidden like sounds from things that you can't see inside other things. While I was kind of just listening to that low-level refrigeration hum of this inscrutable mechanism, I just inventoried everything that I could see while I was standing there looking at the vending machine. And if anyone wants extra information on sound diaries or any of our projects... Just visit www.sound-diaries.com An engine buried deep in the machine hums and murmurs. Invisible cooling mechanisms resonate. It is a sad selection, read like a page from the top left corner. Item codes and prices. McCoy's flame-grilled steak crisps. Three crumpled packets, press 11, 60p. 13, 15, 17 are all empty. The metal spirals perhaps recently having held crisps, I'd guess, from their width, in flavours we can only speculate on. 50p, 50p, 60p. 21, 50p. 23, 50p. 25, 50p. These slots too are empty. What treasures did they hold? 27, perhaps expensive crisps were once here. 60p. The row below. 30, 50p. 31, 50p. 32, 
a blank label, indeterminate price. Whatever was held at 45 and 46 cost 50p, like the lone Nestle Drifter available for 50 pence and typing in the code 47. This next row held small things. The sections are not wide as in the crisp row above. No, this row of diminutive spirals once held small items, chocolate bars, pastels, mints. At 33, for 50p, a barrage of Maynard's wine gums. At 34, nothing, 50p. Code 35 and 50 pence will get you extra strong mints. 36 is empty. 37, round trees, fruit pastels, 50p. You can see more at 41, though no price is listed there. 40, 42, 43, 44 are curiously defunct. No confection to vend. No prices. The gears within churn and groan, a new bassiness to the sound as I listen and list the prices from what I presume was the expensive drinks row, though it is empty now. 50. 80p. 51. No price. 52. £1.10. 53. £1.30. 54. £1.10. 55. £1.30. 56. £1.30. 57 pound thirty. The bottom rung of this vending machine holds mid-price items ranging from 65p to 80p, 60, 65p, 61, 65p, 62, 65p, 63, 65p, 64, 65p, 65, 80p, 66, 65p, 67, 65p. 1p, 2p, 5p, 10p, 20p, 50p and £1 coins are accepted and change is given. I imagine the sound of the coins dropping. It always sounds as if they are falling into a cavernous space, dropping away, metal on metal. But I do not insert my coins, for I don't want a drifter, any wine gums, mints or pastels, and I don't like crisps to come refrigerated. So I listen to the machine, its vending mechanism stilled, but its refrigeration engine whirring deep within, working to maintain a constant temperature somewhere between 8.1 degrees Celsius and 9.4 degrees Celsius. A man comes by on his mobile, he's angry and I gather from what I overhear as he reports this vending machine, reading its ID number off the front that he is going to be reimbursed £3.10 pence, which have been swallowed by the machine. He leaves and I am alone again, watching the little scrolling letters which instruct me on the LED screen to please select product. So I, I'm interested in the idea of um, converting one pattern into another one and how you know when you've done well. Like, do you kind of go, it's now a better pattern? What's the criteria of success in oh. pattern conversion? Pattern <laughs> conversion. Um, I guess there's a few different things. Either one, it can be about the process for me. So I think I do these things to help my, me better understand um, what I'm looking at. So... I feel like the process is as important as the outcome. So then it's probably more of a matter of will and analyzing by hand, which like might be the most important part of it for me. But then 
I guess how I'd figure out whether a pattern is better or not is if it forces the viewer to look at the subject matter in a way, in a new way that um, helps them look afresh at that subject and kind of inspires awe and wonder. Because I, like, I don't think I'm an information designer and I don't think I'm a traditional academic data visualizer, you know, somebody that studies visuals and human cognition and how we, you know, how we see different things and how we interpret um, visual data. Um, what I decided to call myself is a data illustrator where I like to gather data and then kind of represent it faithfully, but then do it in a way that hopefully it would inspire subjective feelings or communicate something more subjective mm. about the data, I guess, or about a topic. I really like that as a description. Data illustrator, to me, seems much more exciting than data visualizer. Like you're actually putting some effort into creating something. You're not just yeah. summarizing. Yeah, bring it to life in a different way. Yeah, yeah, so maybe half of it is the selection of the data and, you know, what I want to look at. Sometimes people pay me to work on projects and I'm eternally grateful, but, you know, for a lot of my personal work, it is just me trying to find something amazing in a place that nobody's looked before, trying to find something hidden, something beautiful, like in rap or in um, long multiplication or in um, a book and kind of presenting that in a, in a new way. So then you realize, wow, look at all this. Look, at this is all hidden in the, in the world we live in and we never noticed it before. I'm not an academic. I think the world of information design and data visualization is a very critical world. And there's this huge spectrum of different ways that people work with data and work with an aesthetic and merging these two. I don't know, it's a, it's a very scary world. So I think if I just say I'm a data illustrator, then nobody thinks I'm creating academic things to be cited in, in like someone's paper so hopefully they'll be nicer to me it gives you scope to be really creative with it as well which I like yeah Yeah, like you can be faithful to the representation of the data but hopefully it allows more creativity in how you use that data as a tool to create something bigger Um, Stephanie thank you so much for coming in and talking to us it's been really fascinating thank you thank you It's snack time. And we have Lee Maguire again, who's heroically returned to do some updates like the other snacks on this episode are from last year. Which wow. we never are you used. actually going to play those? I think we should because they're really funny. They um, must have gone off by now. There's some, there's some weird sort of slightly slightly borderline stuff about brown wheat. <laughs> <laughs> we get into some racial territory, which is interesting. <laughs> How do you feel about Heston Blumenthal's nuts? <laughs> Can't um, wait. Excited. <laughs> I went. I actually went looking for mince pies. You know how you imagine that, that Christmas foods are all like you know spiced apple watsits. You know, like they've taken some. They've taken a regular food and then added a sort of a weird yeah. Christmassy flavour that won't work outside of Christmas because it's bizarre. And I found these. <laughs> I found Heston's hot and sour nuts. Do we know what sort of nuts these are? Mixed nuts, almonds, cashew nuts, pecan nuts, pistachio nuts, hot and sour seasoning. Okay. Okay. Not as hot as I was thinking, but slight, they are slightly sour. They're slightly almost vinegary. I like the sour. Mm. I think the sour is a good thing. It's mm. nice, actually. Yeah, I'm, I'm getting the, a, a, a sort of acidic mm. kind of thing in my tongue, which... Imagine a honey roast um, cashew nut, but instead of being a honey roast uh, seasoning on the outside, it's almost like a fizzy cola bottle um, <laughs> coating. <laughs> I mean, it's not sugar. It's, it's still the same sort of flaky brown, brown um, 
stuff, but it's it's got that nice zingy feeling, hasn't it? Citric acid. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's all about the citric acid. It's burning slightly afterwards as well. There's a slight, there's a slight hot a, aftertaste, which wow. is nice. Yeah, these are really good, Lee. <laughs> it's good. I can imagine these on, on my Christmas table. And also <laughs> to uh, complete the Heston Blumenthal dining experience, although presumably without the food poisoning, um, curry spiced popcorn. It's suggested that this is the popcorn that, that you would have as a snack for a night in watching a Bollywood blockbuster. Oh, racial. Which, well, you know. <laughs> it's got the same kind of brown caramelised colour. But it smells very, oh, very wow. much of curry powder. I'm not sure about this. <laughs> it, has, it definitely has the caramel flavour, but with curry powder thrown in as well. You it's could like, make this at yeah, home. It's like some lovely sweet popcorn fell in some curry. Mm. <coughs> Someone you're dried su- it out on a radio. You're suggesting that, that Heston may just be phoning it in now. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Childhood favourites. Does anyone remember Tunuks? How did you say that? Well, I, tulips. I say Tunuks. Is it not Tunuks? It could be Tunuks. It's spelled T-U-N-N-O-C-K-S. Yes. And they do caramel biscuits. They caramel do, wafer but, biscuits. But now these are dark. They've gone tunux black. have gone black. They've blacked so, up for Christmas. Did you have tonics, Stephanie, in America? No. Yeah, tonics um, were massive in the 80s because they do those tea cakes, yes. I love dark, them. The, but these are the tea cakes. These bars. But these are also dark tea cakes. Yeah. Dark tea cakes They're and dark them. wafer biscuits. Dark tea cakes. They, I it's love the like, packaging. It's like, the, it's like, imagine a tea cake, but with an evil Spock goatee. Wow. <laughs> so we're going to go for a caramel biscuit <laughs> first. I think you can taste the dark chocolate. Maybe a little bit. It doesn't look very dark, I have to say. Slightly darker than a milk chocolate. <laughs> but it's not jet black, <laughs> as Lee had led us to believe. Stephanie, not having had these as a child, you might not be familiar with the very special lunchbox treat that would mm. be a caramel biscuit. Mm. When I was at primary school, this would have been um, a delight. I would have been mm. over the moon to have a, a different variety of caramel biscuit. Well, I was just thinking, like, it reminds me more of the American chocolate bars we've had on the show mm. and some of the English ones now so mm. a lot of those were quite wafery and had a lot of caramel layers I don't know I think wafers are British do you? Okay. I just don't think they're kind of glam enough <laughs> <laughs> like you know there's no caramel or ne- the Almost rest is just filler yeah. the rest is styrofoam <laughs> thus, whereas, thus therefore it fits well into the post-war British diet <laughs> yeah. this is an austerity biscuit <laughs> <laughs> this is what we'll all be eating next year <laughs> it really is it's a 99% biscuit. And it's also wrapped in a piece of paper. Mm. Uh, wasn't there a thing where they started bringing them out wrapped in like more than one layer and people started complaining oh. that it, and they had to go they back to the original? Like a, like a sealed plastic pouch that was mm. full of air or something. Mm. I, I think that would remove mm. some of its charm. Mm. So, so uh, more modern packaging. These are the McVitie's Temptations. Uh, we've got two uh, little bite-sized biscuits uh, this is Belgian milk chocolate and praline. I believe there are other. There's a couple of other varieties of these now. These have, have just come out. And these look quite overpackaged, don't they? they so this is well, one, yes. one or two little biscuits in a little two plastic tiny pouch. biscuits in, in one of those sort of slightly metallic pouches. So I'll, I'll open this up. None of the charm of the uh, old world uh, tunnocks. <laughs> so uh, if you'd like to try one of those. What, what flavour is it supposed to be? It tastes a bit of coffee to me. It's uh, Belgian milk chocolate praline. Oh, okay. It's quite rich. Pleasingly chocolatey, definitely. And they're quite small, but you don't feel like you'd really want a big one. They do seem like evil Jaffa cakes. <laughs> mm, oh, yeah, so Jaffa that's... Cake. <laughs> black Jaffa cake. That's yeah, definitely... just say what you mean, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> when you say evil, you mean black. Look, I'm not black obsessed. <laughs> How about a white line bar? <laughs> but you like this one, don't you? This is... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes. Or, or, or as I like to call it, the, the master bar. Um, <laughs> look, it's you who are twisting my words. Now, Stephanie, if you've not had a lion bar before, you may be disappointed. The inside is wafer, but then they're like, to make up for it, they've just thrown on as much fat <laughs> as they could. They padded it with fat. Which is in the form of caramel and white chocolate. So I don't think these have actually been launched in the UK. These are Polish lion bars. This is a black market import. <laughs> so this is what I this is what I found as far as as far as Christmas goes. Mr. and Little Miss Christmas gummies. If you're familiar with the Tesco uh, Mr. Men gummies, these are exclusive to Tesco. I they believe. are exclusive to Tesco, and you think it should have been obvious for years that the Mr. Men and gummy sweets. Would have, would have worked together. More so than Percy Pig, I would imagine. Yeah. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the Blue Mr. Bumps, specifically. It's not like I demand only Blue Mr. Bumps. So it's, not like a, uh, it's not like a sort of a rider. But what we have here are Christmas specials. Yeah, this is uh, apple and strawberry flavour. For the life of me, I don't recognise either of these, uh, of these characters. But... Oh, can I see? Um, Mr. So is, that, is that Little Miss... Chatterbox. Well, apparently she's called Little well, Miss Christmas. I think they're oh. Mr. and oh, Little no. Miss Christmas. You oh, see? No. What a sellout by... It's uh... not a real thing. There was a Mr. Christmas, I think, because I, I never trusted him. Because he wasn't the same <laughs> as all the others. None of the others were sort of branded by any national holiday. <laughs> suddenly Mr. Christmas came it's along. propaganda. They're quite strong smelling, aren't they? Mm. The shapes. Yeah. You can definitely read what shape they are. Mm. Often printing on these sorts of gum sweets isn't very good and everything just merges into a bit of a blob. Mm. The quality of the printing would make me buy them again. (laughs) (laughs) And to finish off uh, Christmas snacks, I don't even know what these are called. Uh, If you could could give that an attempt. Well, the the brand seems to be Jewel Scum, which uh, I'm wondering if... uh, (laughs) Yeah, so this is J-U-L-E-S. K-U-M. Nice. It must be Yule. Yule scum. Yeah, maybe Yule it's a scum. Christmas, Christmas scum. scum. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's from Sweden, I believe. But it's Yule scum polka. But they are little Father Christmases mm. uh, in, I guess, a sort of marshmallow form. They look like flumps from here. Not very well printed. No, not very well printed. They're quite big. About the size of a man's thumb. Well, it tastes like putty. Does it? <laughs> <laughs> are you sure this is food? <laughs> These are very Hessen Blumenthal because they're marshmallowy. And then they taste like a candy cane, like a peppermint. They do, they've got peppermint yeah. flavouring. It's but... really hard work. Like halfway through, you're like, oh, I've got to finish this now because yeah. it is socially unacceptable to spit it out. <laughs> it's not exactly a flub, Back is it? into the bag. <laughs> I mean, Maybe that's already happened. You're still going on that no, one. No, yeah. it tastes a bit like it should be cleaning my teeth as I eat it. It's yeah. something a dentist would put in your mouth. I'll probably have another one anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you quite like them, don't you? Yeah, actually, I'm going to go for a second one. <laughs> They're very dense, and so they're a lot st- of work. You started insulting the Yule scum. Actually, of everything we've had tonight, Lee, I think that might be my... F- no. no. No, the, the McVitie's Temptations, were they were the, the really? succulent delight of the evening, but the Yule scum, I think, comes a, a close second for me. What do you think, Stephanie? Mm. Oh, she's still eating. <laughs> what do you think, Layla? Um, I think these nuts are my favourite. The, uh, the very first thing we tried, which was hot and sour nuts. Mm. They were indeed hot and sour, and they were quite delicious and Christmassy. Um... I agree. I like the hot and sour nuts, though the Yule scum is Moorish. They are Moorish. Yeah. Lee. Yes. Thank you very much. No problem. Yeah, have a lovely. I hope you have a lovely white Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy Christmas, everyone on the internet. So yes.
We might just let this happen. We'll be back in a minute on Shift and Stop. I was wondering if we should introduce Joel, who has just arrived. Joel Ronson, John's son. Hello. Joel, can you tell us about your uh, experience with the world of comics? Because I've seen some of your columns and they're excellent. And um, Thank you very much. Also, I'm not funny. doing it anymore. I used, oh, no. Yeah. I used to do this column for um, Bleeding Cool called 12 Years Experience, mm. which moved on to 13 Years Experience. <laughs> um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. yeah but, um, you know, I used to think that S Club 8 were called S Club 8 because they were all eight years old. <laughs> I used to love S Club 8 when yeah, I was, I like, four. Don't. Yeah, Bleeding Cool. I mean, I don't do it at all anymore. It's not like I've quit. It's just I haven't done it in a while. And it, it, it's a good it's a good blog. Um, bit too much superhero pornography for my liking, <laughs> but it's a good blog. What, what's yeah. your favourite comic? Favourite comic? Series or just comic book? Oh, series, yeah. Series? Or even, like... Comic manufacturing company. Right. <laughs> well, company Marvel. Mm. We got and a then... tour of Marvel when we were in New York. Wow. Oh, yeah. 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 Were, they, were the staff all dressed up as superheroes? No, that'd be amazing. Have you got some <laughs> yeah. characters that you really like out of the Marvel universe? I like I like most of them, to be honest. I mean, there's one or two I'm not so keen on. Let me think. Um, Which are the rubbish ones? <laughs> <laughs> okay, bad superheroes. <laughs> well, there's always the sort of spin-off series like She-Hulk. Is that like a She-Ra Hulk crossover, or is it just a female Hulk? Just a female like a Hulk, She-Hulk. yeah. Right. And um, really poor, isn't it? And yeah, really poor. And um, Superboy. Actually, I take that back. Superboy is all right. Um, Supergirl is that a bit made up? There's a film. Isn't I I, well, I read some Supergirl and I didn't think it was very good. I was I was mm. a bit disappointed. Are they trying to just kind of open it up to another market? Like they think, oh, if we do a girl, then yeah. girls will read it. Well, I think Supergirl is actually a sort of n- not a spin-off series because right. she's kind she's of a totally cool. different character. Right. Like okay. connected to Superman but like a different personality and a different way of dealing with crime. What's her relationship to to Superman? I think she's his daughter. Oh really? Yeah. Oh wow. I know. I thought he was like a pure virginous like I suppose not really. Yeah. Lois Lane and stuff. No, um is Lois Lane the mum? Yeah, how does that work? Oh, is she no. like a hybrid half super? No, I guess Supergirl isn't half for daughter then. Because Supergirl mm. would only be like half super, wouldn't she? Mm. She'd be mediocre girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um actually no mediocre's too bad to be sort yeah. of halfway. Really good Marvel comics. I love Deadpool. How could you not love Deadpool? What sort of comic is it? He's like like a sort of crazy schizophrenic mercenary. <laughs> um, so that's always fun to read. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, Spider-Man, the classics, Fantastic Four. I read more old comics than you. I, I like the sort of Kirby era. That's all good. But I haven't read them in a while. I, I read them all on a holiday. Do you think you want to um, carry on reviewing and writing about cultural things? A bit, a bit like your dad? Um, like, is that what you want to do? I'm more into performing than writing. Mm. Um, I always think I'm like kind of a bad advertisement for, ad- for <coughs> writing because, you know, if Joel ever comes in here and I'm writing, I'm like Jack Nicholson in the shadow. <laughs> I turned to him with a look of sort of... 
loathing and self-loathing. It's like, what? <laughs> Can't you see I'm writing? <laughs> when you hear this noise. <laughs> yeah. Do you, you, you ever feel at all rejected when your dad, like, travels like, to America to interview some mentor for ten minutes? No, no, no. <laughs> of course, of course not. I... I... I, um... <laughs> I felt uh, I, I felt, can't watch me play football. Sorry, <laughs> I'm off to Latvia. No, of course not. Of course not. I've got uh, a psychopathic hospital. I've never felt rejected by you, except oh. for except for when. Except for one time. Except for that one time. Remember. <laughs> So we should say thanks so much to John and Joel for spending so much of their evening and letting us into their beautiful home. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks both very much. Thanks for enjoying Christmas with us. Thank you. I enjoyed it very much too. Thanks, John. Goodbye. 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 You've been listening to Shift Run Stop shiftrunstop.co.uk I'm in computers I'm in computers